Hey, my name is Phil and this is my wife Meredith and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. You can be seated and as you are, you can ask somebody next to you, how do you use your table? I think one of the funny things, I don't know if you've noticed this, but one of the things I've noticed about tables, like dining room tables, is that, or like your kitchen table, you know, is that they get used for a lot of different things. Have you noticed that like, a lot of times they don't even get used for eating anymore. Like we eat like at the bar, and our tables become like this whole other like space, right? It's homework space. They've become our offices. They become the place where we store our laptop bags or our purses. Their laundry gets folded on them. Their craft stage. They're often filled with a lot of other things, right? And I don't, this is just my rule. This isn't like, you know, this isn't Bible. This is just me. But I don't fold laundry on the kitchen. I have two places where I don't fold laundry. I don't fold laundry on our dining room table and I don't fold laundry in the bedroom. And some of you are like, those are the two places that laundry gets folded. What are you talking about right now? This is why, for me, because the table and the bedroom are sacred places. Sacred things happen in those places. And I think when we allow common things to happen in sacred places, we devalue the value of that space and of that place. We make it just like everywhere else. And I just want to invite us this morning to remember some sacred places in our life. That when we come into the house of God, that when we do our giving, that when we lift up his name, we shouldn't become too common with it. We shouldn't come in like we come in everywhere else. We shouldn't enter like we enter in everywhere else. We shouldn't become too familiar with the things of God. And there are lots of activities that happen at the dining room table or at our kitchen tables that have nothing to do with its original intent and its original purpose, like sitting around it and gathering together. And here is just the question that I want to pose to you. What is it that you're doing with your table? There are many things that we can do with our table, and today I want to look at two people and contrast the way that they used the table that God gave them, how the way they used their places of influence, the way they used their place of power, the way they used the position that they had, the way they used it. I wonder where God has positioned you. I wonder where God has placed you. I wonder what places of power or of influence he has put you in. And I wonder what you're doing with that space. You can turn with me in the book of Samuel to 1 Samuel 20. We're going to jump and then we're going to kind of like back up in the story. This is 1 Samuel 20 and verse 42. 1 Samuel 40 and 20 and verse 42. This is a story about David and Saul. If you know much about the story of David and King Saul, King Saul had been anointed as king, but then it says the spirit of the Lord left him. And then David was anointed as king. And then there's all of this stuff that happens. David kills the giant and David goes out and he wins all kinds of battles and he's brought into Saul's house and he gets to sit there for ages. And but except for Saul then begins to turn against him because he's jealous of who David is. And so then we find ourselves in this moment as you go through 1 Samuel, verse 20, 
And we hear that David has realized that he can no longer sit at Saul's table. He had been invited to sit at the table of the king and he sat there and he ate, but all of the sudden he could sense that the king's heart had turned away from him and he was sitting at a table that was no longer good for him, that was no longer healthy for him, that was no longer a place where he could be fed and could be safe and could be restored and could move into the purpose and the plan that God had for him. So David and his buddy Jonathan come up with this plan where David is gonna miss sitting at the table for three days and he's gonna go and hide and David's gonna put a, Jonathan is gonna put a test out to find out how Saul responds to David's absence. And if Saul responds with anger, then Jonathan is gonna go and he's gonna tell David, you were right, it's not a good place for you to be anymore. But if Saul responds kindly, then Jonathan can go and can tell David, you're actually safe here. You've made this all up in your head. Everything is fine for you to come and to sit at the king's table. But if you know the story, you know that Saul does not respond kindly. When David's not sitting at the table, Saul begins to be furious and anger rises up in him and he begins to fume at everyone in the room and he even throws a spear at his own son, Jonathan. And so Jonathan runs to David and through their messaging, through the code, he tells him, you are right. You need to run away from here. You need to flee. And here is a small question about how Saul used his table is looking at the tables that you're sitting at and reflecting on the fact that every table that is set does not mean it's a table you have to sit at. We live in a day and a moment and a time where we think that every moment that shines a light on us means that's our moment of promotion. We live in a day and a time where everybody is looking for their next great break and their next big thing and their next way to cash in or cash out and level up and become famous and become a hashtag influencer. But just because a table is set for you does not mean it's a table that you need to go sit at it might be that tables are being set for you that are a trap for you and David had enough God in him and enough sense in him and enough wisdom in him that he knew that the table that Saul had set for him was not the place that his promotion was going to come from because if he looked to Saul for his promotion he might consider Saul the source of his promotion he might consider Saul the source of his strength he might consider Saul the source of his influence but some Sometimes there's a season where a table is set for you and it looks like it's just the thing you've been waiting on, but you hear that Holy Spirit thing that says, that's not the thing that I have for you. I need you to turn and walk in a different direction. I need you to go into what seems like a wilderness season. I need you to walk into a space that looks like it's everything opposite of the thing I had planned for you. David knew that he was supposed to be king, but he had enough faith in the word of God. He had enough faith in the things of God to walk away from the king's table the place it looked like he was supposed to be and say I'll go hide in the wilderness God if that's where you are there needs to be a people that have enough sense to say I'm not chasing after my promotion I'm chasing after the things of God and I'm chasing after the heart of God because I know that my promotion is coming when I'm found in his presence when I'm found in his place and if it's God then he can find me in the backside 
side of a desert. He can find me in a cave and gather the people I need all around me. If it's God, he'll find me wherever I am as long as I'm with him. But I can't be found at just anybody's table. I can't eat food from just anybody's table. I can't feed myself on just everything that's being served up because I have been called to something. And David runs away from the king's table runs away from everything that it looks like he's supposed to be about he runs away because he trusts his relationship with Jonathan scripture says that their hearts were knit together and that they loved each other and King David who would be King David's relationship with Saul and with Jonathan are so different his relationship with Saul was rooted in jealousy and in competition. And his relationship with Jonathan was rooted in camaraderie, in brotherly affection, in a spirit of teamwork and working together. Saul wanted to kill him and wanted to take him out and Jonathan wanted to save him and wanted to cover him. You have to find the people in your life who are going to be the partner, people in your life that God has sent you to walk with you and to cover you. And Saul took the position of power that God had given him, and he took the seat he had at the head of the table, and he used it for control, and he used it for manipulation, and he used it to prop himself up, and he used it to figure out who he could bring in and elevate and who he could put down and separate. How are you using the table that God has given you? He put you in that classroom for a reason. How are you using the position of influence that God has given you? He put you on that team for a reason. He made you that coach for a reason. How are you using the position of influence that God has given you? How are you using the table that God has given you? And we jump all the way to 2 Samuel, and there's a lot of life that happens in the midst of that, but the major theme of what happens is that the kingship transfers from Saul to David. And then David goes about establishing his kingdom. He gets his people in order and he gets all of the things that he needs in order. And all of a sudden we see by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9 that David has now established his own table. And what we know about David is that David has a heart after God. He has a heart that is like God, which is confusing if you read the life of David. Because there's a lot of David that's not so God-like. But in his heart, he hungered after God. In his heart, he never left that first love. In his heart, he was always still a shepherd boy just playing his harp out in the field where nobody knew. Do you still have a heart after God? When he puts you at a table, do you still hunger after him the way you did when you first encountered him? Do you still hunger after him the way that you did when nobody was looking at you? 
Do you still hunger for him and sing to him and worship him and praise him and long for his presence the way you did when you didn't have any of the concerns that you have and you didn't have any of the responsibility that you have? David had a heart that hungered after God. And because he had a heart that hungered after God, when he came and he had his own table that had been established, he sat at his table and look what he says. Second Samuel chapter nine and verse one, it says, and David said, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I now this isn't Saul is not just David's like arch enemy. He's not just like his rival dad across the street that he wants to one up with his grill skills this summer. Saul is the man who came after David and tried to kill him and tried to defeat him. Saul is the man that tried to prevent David from stepping into the thing that God had anointed him and called him to. And we're living in the era of kings. And when a new king took over, it was customary that what the king should do, was expected to do, was to destroy the entire lineage of anyone of the household of the king that he was overthrowing to ensure that his kingdom would be established, to ensure that there were no other additional uprisings happening. But David gets his table and he says, I don't have to do it like everyone else does it. I don't have to follow those rules just because you said those are the rules and the way that things should happen. Instead, he says, is there anyone left that I could show them kindness? And what happens is one of the servants says, I actually know of someone that still belongs to the house of Saul. In fact, he didn't just belong to the house of Saul. He was the grandson of Saul and he was the son of Jonathan. And I've heard that he's still living. And David says, then go and send for him. And they find out that this man named Mephibosheth was still alive, but he was living out in a place called Lodabar. He was living far away. He was out in hiding on the outskirts of town, living in someone else's home, someone else who guarded him and someone else who took care of him and someone else who covered him because Mephibosheth not only was the grandson of the king, but Mephibosheth, you can say that too all week long, Mephibosheth had been wounded when the palace had been raided. If you go back and you read the story, it says that as the palace began to be raided, one of the servants, one of the nurses picked up Mephibosheth, who was a child at the time, and she started to run to try and keep him safe. But while she was running, trying to keep him safe, she tripped. And when she tripped, Mephibosheth fell and he was wounded and he was hurt and he became lame in his feet. And so Mephibosheth is now hiding on the backside of the country in a borrowed home. He 
was the grandson of the king, but now he is hurt and he is wounded and he is damaged. And at the time, not only would it have meant that he was hiding from the potential that David would come and one want to assassinate him because he is of the lineage of the king, but also this now, this infirmity that he has would disqualify him from being able to be known in the kingly lineage. He is absolutely in hiding and someone goes to Mephibosheth and they say to Mephibosheth, hey, the king has called for you. The king has invited you to come and to sit at his table. Someone has been given the responsibility to go out to the place where Mephibosheth is hiding and invite him to come sit at the table of the king. Who are you supposed to be inviting to sit at the table of the king? Someone who's in hiding, someone who has been wounded, someone who is sitting on the backside of our city in a borrowed room in someone else's home, just hoping that no one else notices them too much. And can you imagine Mephibosheth making his way to the king's castle? He doesn't know that the king has called him with kindness. He doesn't know that the king wants to offer him a seat at the table. He doesn't know that the king was a friend of his father and wants to restore everything that that is lost. Mephibosheth knows that he is broken in his feet. He knows that he was dropped when he should have been covered. He knows that his grandfather and his father are dead, and he knows that it is the custom of kings to eliminate every person that is of the lineage of the king before them in all of Mephibosheth's mind. He is being called before the king, not for restoration, but for judgment. And how many people in our city think that when the king calls them, he's calling with an arm to cut them down because of who they were or where they came from or the thing that wounded them or the thing that they're carrying or the thing that they're covering instead of knowing that it's the heart of the king to bring them kindness. And Mephibosheth comes into the king's courtroom. And David says to him in 2 Samuel 9 and 7, it says, And so David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He says, I will restore to you all the land of your father. David had every right to cut Mephibosheth off and he had every right to destroy him. He had every right to marginalize him. But instead, David says, I have a heart that's like God. And so my heart that's like God, he's given me this table, this table that I didn't earn and this table that I couldn't have made by myself and this table that has nothing to do with my goodness and everything to do with his faithfulness. And so because he's given me this table, Mephibosheth, I wanna restore to you all the land. You don't have to live in a borrowed home anymore. You don't have to hide on the backside of town anymore. I want to give you land. And it says he even gives him servants to care for it and to tend for it. He restores to him more than he had because he gives them the portion of the king. And he says, all of that land is now yours. But even that land is not what you have to live off of because you don't have to worry about anything. All the days that you're alive, you can come and you can sit at the table of 
of a king. You can come and you can fellowship with the king. You can come and you can eat at a table that has been prepared for you by a king. And this isn't a table prepared out of competition. And this isn't a table that's been prepared as a trap. This is a table that has been prepared for your restoration. This is a table that has been prepared to show you loving kindness. This is a table because of the goodness of God. This is a table that is here to show you that you get to sit just like everyone else at the table. And Mephibosheth, with his broken lineage and his broken legs, gets to sit at the seat of a king. And he comes up to the table and he's no longer a cripple who was dropped by someone, but he's the grandson of a king sitting at the king's table. And there's a lesson here that I've heard a lot and I think it's true and I think it's accurate, which is that when Mephibosheth came up to the table, there's an application that he sat at the table and when we sit at the table, the thing that wounded him and the thing that was broken about him, the thing that brought him shame and brought him embarrassment because he sat at the king's table, that thing was covered. And I want you to know that if you have broken things in your life and you have hurting places in your life and you have areas of shame of something that was done to you or something that you walked yourself into, that there is a seat at the king's table. And when you sit at the king's table, you're not the lame man that you were when you walked in. You are the child of the king that he called you to be and that he designed you to be. And Mephibosheth sat there, not as a cripple, but as a grandson of the king. But what I love about what happens at that table is not just that he was covered by it, but that when he came in, everybody knew that he was broken. Let me walk this out for you. It's not just that we get to sit at the king's table and have our hurting and our broken places covered. It's that there's something that happens when we come in and we open ourselves up before the king and we open ourselves up before each other for everyone to see, I have broken places in my life and I have wounded places in my life and there are parts of me that are crippled and there are parts of me that are broken and there are parts of me that aren't like they used to be because the damage and the warring of life has marked me and has harmed me in some ways and some of them are choices that I made on my own and some of them are choices of other people that were made to me. But when I come in here, you can see me for all that I am. There is something that happens when we bring the thing that is in darkness out into the light. And it must have been Mephibosheth's greatest fear that they would see his weakness and would reject him, that they would see his brokenness and think that he was an easy target. But it is that brokenness that comes out before him. And though they saw how broken he was, David still said you have a seat at this table though you revealed how broken you are though you have shown the whole the hurting places in your life though you have shown the wounded places in your life it is our greatest fear that we will be disqualified when we show God just how deep our anger issue is it is our greatest fear that we will be disqualified when we show God how deep the whole of our pornography addiction has gotten it is our deepest fear that we will be disqualified when we show God the way we behaved in the midst of our divorce. It is our greatest fear that we will be disqualified
qualified when we show God how our addiction has taken control of us. It is our greatest fear that we will be disqualified when we show God and we show each other the way that someone touched me and handled me and did me when I never should have done that way. But God said, show me your broken places. Show me your hurting places. Show me the places where you think you've been disqualified. And even though I've seen it, and even though it's there, and even though it's hurt you, and even though it's wounded you, and even though it breaks his heart that you never should have been damaged, and you never should have been wounded, and you never should have been handled that way, and it's outside his perfect ideal plan for your life, he says, even with your broken place, and even with your hurting place, pull up a chair, and you can sit with us at the king's table. There's a seat for you in this place with your broken-footed self, with your broken-hearted self, with your wounded self, with your uncertain self. Come and bring a seat at the table because this is a house where real people come to worship, real people who have walked through some things, and real people who have been hurt by some things, and real people who have been damaged in some ways, and real people who are unsure if God still sees them and God still loves them. But I tell you, if you have enough guts like Hagar to sit in the midst of a wilderness thinking you might die and say, in the midst of my shame, you are the God who sees. And you have invited me to sit at your table. And David decides to use his table to restore the brokenhearted. He decides to use his table to bring people into a place of healing, to feed those who thought they were never allowed to sit in this space. Again, how are you using your table? We have been invited to sit with the king. And David is a picture for us of Jesus. He's a picture for us of Christ who made a table and who said, I'm sending out an invitation. And just like those servants who were sent to find Mephibosheth, if you're a servant of the king, you've been sent to find the edge of the city, to find the people who are in hiding, to find the people who are in broken places, to go out after them and said, the king has sent an invitation to you. He's calling you into this place. And time and time again, we see Jesus restoring people, bringing them back and breaking their shame. Now what happened to Mephibosheth happened to Mephibosheth because somebody else dropped him. And there's a lot of shame and a lot of brokenness that we carry because of what was said to us or what was done to us or the type of house we grew up in to things that were outside of us that pressed in on us. But I want us to look at what Jesus does in John 21. In John 21, Jesus has just risen from the dead. He was crucified, he went into the grave, he came back up again. And if you're familiar with the story, you might know what Peter is carrying with him right now. But in case you're not, before Jesus died, he told Peter, you're gonna deny me. 
you're going to walk away and tell people you have no idea who I am. And Peter, of course, says, I would never do anything like that, Jesus, don't be ridiculous. And then, of course, because when you contradict the Son of God, you're always wrong, Peter does, in fact, deny Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, which is a picture to us of a complete and a perfect witness in Scripture. Three times, Peter says, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. And he's heard rumor that Jesus has gotten back up. But Peter thinks that the thing that he has done has disqualified him from the thing that Jesus told him he would be and he would do. See, Jesus spoke over Peter that he would be the rock that he would build his church on. But can you imagine Peter, after denying Jesus, denying Jesus, denying Jesus, and we find him in the story back in a boat, fishing, which is where he was when Jesus called him. It's the place that Jesus called him out of. But Peter thinks he's disqualified himself, and so because he thinks he's disqualified himself, he goes back to the last thing that he knew that he was good at, except for this time, he's not any good at it. He sits out all night and he can't catch any fish. Some of you are trying to go back to something that you used to be good at. You're trying to use the skills that served you in the last season, but Jesus has called you forward into something new and into something different. And that thing that served you in the last season is not going to serve you in this season. So Jesus calls them in. Before he calls them in, he fixes their fishing situation for them and they get the biggest load of fish that they have ever gotten. Here's a fun fact for you. We've been talking about numbers lately. You know how numbers and letters correlate in Hebrew. We've been talking about that. It says that they had 153 fish when they pulled in their fish and when they counted them all after Jesus saved their fishing night for him. The number 153, I won't say it right. It means like El Alo Hayim, but it translates into I am God. When they bring in those fish, God is telling them, I am God. That's just a fun fact for you Bible nerds. Jesus calls them back into the shore after they catch their fish. And Peter, classic Peter, everyone else is like, cool, we're going to row the boat in because we're in a boat. Peter jumps out of the boat and starts swimming back into the shore. He can't wait until we row it in. I just wonder, did he think that walking on water thing was going to work again? I don't know. This is just what I surmise while I'm reading it. But it says Peter jumps out and he runs back into the shore. And what I love about Peter time and time again in scripture is that he just jumps in with all of who he is. There's no part of him that holds back. I want you to jump in with all of who you are. And though he feels disqualified and though he feels shame, he's got enough sense to run back to Jesus. And when he gets to the shore, in verse 12, it says, and Jesus said to him, come and have breakfast. Come, I've prepared a table for you. Come, sit and eat with me. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took bread with them and he gave it with them. And then he did the same with the fish. He invited them to come and have a meal with him at a table he had prepared for them. 
he invited them to come and to sit with him. And they knew when they sat with him that this was the Lord. And then it goes on. And Jesus asks, as they're sitting there eating, Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, you know I do, Jesus. Jesus says, good. Make sure you feed my sheep. What's he saying? He's saying, make sure you do that thing that I told you to do. And then he asks him again, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Jesus, you know that I love you. I'm getting just a smidgen of that. I just answered this question, Jesus. And Jesus says, very good. Then do that thing that I told you to do before. And then it says, Jesus asked him three times, one time for each time that Peter had disowned Jesus. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And can you hear the frustration in Peter's voice this time? Jesus, you know that I love you. Jesus says, good. Then do that thing that I told you to do. Jesus brings Peter to a breakfast on the beach because he wants to restore him to where he was before that thing that he walked himself into. He wants to remind him that you are still qualified, still qualified, not because of your own actions, not because of the thing that you did, qualified because I saw you, Peter, qualified because I called you, Peter, qualified because I am the lifter of shame and of every heavy burden. Jesus comes to find Peter, to call him back from the thing he had tried to return to because he wants to restore him to the person he had called him to be because Jesus is the lifter of shame and between David's table and Jesus's table we're reminded that it's not what has been done to you and it's not what you have done it's that you have been invited to sit and to dine with the king an invitation has gone out for you to come and to sit at his table and that feeling of shame that feeling of shame is going to leave you today that feeling of shame that tells you that you're unworthy, that feeling of shame that tells you you're unqualified, that feeling of shame that tells you if they really knew they'd turn me away, that feeling of shame that tries to separate you from the presence of God, let it be lifted off of every life today. Shame is the thing. Way back when Eve took that fruit off of the tree and she ate of the tree. And the, for the first time, somebody did something outside of the plan of God. Shame came in and it sent her into hiding just like Mephibosheth went in to hiding just like Peter was trying to hide in the things that he had known before. Some of us are trying to be in hiding. You're hiding in this room behind a nice outfit. You're hiding in this room behind all of the things that you do. You're hiding behind faces. You're hiding behind a screen because you think you're unworthy to come back because of things that you've done or things that you've said. But the thing that led to them walking with God again is when God came into the garden and he said, where are you? And finally, Adam and Eve came out of hiding. And when they came before Jesus, it says, and he made a covering for them. He can't make a covering for you as long as you're hiding, but he wants to cover you. 
He's inviting you to come and to have a seat at your, at his table. But before we leave, I wanna pray over people today. I wanna ask you to do something really bold, which is that if you know that you need to have shame lifted from you, I'm gonna ask you to stand right where you are. Right where you are, just stand up because you don't have to tell everybody why, but it's that thing that says, I'm coming out of hiding that begins to lift the shame. Thank you guys for your courage, for your boldness, that's standing, that's lifting shame. If you're online, put your name in the chat. If you're somewhere where you can stand, just stand up and say, God, I'm coming out of hiding today. Shame is being lifted off of my life today. Now I'm gonna ask some people to gather around these guys in this room, those of you who are on the chat to begin praying over those names. We're gonna pray together as we sing this song together, this declaration that you are a child of God, this declaration that when he sees you, he sees an heir of the throne. We are gonna begin to pray together in this room. We're praying over every life. I want people around you to begin praying. Come on, these are not prayers. These are not prayers of just his presence. These are prayers of the warring presence that says you are welcome at the table. These are prayers of the saints of God that say we see you and you are known by God. Come on, let's get some power in the room today that says the shame would be lifted off of your life. That says that he is the God who opened the seas. That says that he is the God who knows you. That says that he is the God who strengthens you. That says that he is the lifter of shame. Come on, pray around them, say.